Hard to believe, but we are now in our final lecture of the course, and today we are going to continue in our discussion of Aboriginal rights issues, Aboriginal law, and we're going to discuss first the duty to consult. We're then going to speak about Aboriginal treaty rights, and then we're going to speak about Métis rights, and finally we'll talk about the intersection of the Charter and Aboriginal rights. So the duty to consult is discussed and described and delineated in the very important Haida Nation case. This is a 2004 decision written by Chief Justice McLaughlin, and it has been one of the most important decisions in the Aboriginal rights and Aboriginal law field. It is where Chief Justice McLaughlin describes a procedural right a duty to consult with First Nations in respect of decisions that may affect asserted or proven Aboriginal interests in land or Aboriginal rights. And the case involved a tree farm license that was issued on Haida Gwaii. Haida Gwaii is an island off the coast of British Columbia and the Haida Nation has asserted Aboriginal title to that land for over a hundred years. And on any measure, the claim is remarkably strong. There's really no question the Haida Nation have lived on and around Haida Gwaii since before the time of the assertion of sovereignty, since before contact, since time immemorial. And yet, as I I think I even mentioned in an earlier lecture, Aboriginal title has not yet been declared for Haida Gwaii. Why not? Well, we spoke a bit about the difficulties in establishing Aboriginal title last class, and we spoke about the evidentiary difficulties and the remarkable burden it places on a First Nation to prove title. So this case raises the question of what should be done in the meantime? You have a strong claim for title, but it's not yet been judicially recognized. In the meantime, the province has issued a tree farm license to a forestry company which will allow them to harvest lumber on Haida Gwaii. And the court took the opportunity of the Haida case to delineate what obligations are owed by the Crown to an Aboriginal group when something is contemplated that could adversely affect asserted or proven rights. And the court found there's a duty to consult and potentially a duty to accommodate Aboriginal rights. Where was this duty found? What is the legal basis for this duty? It is in the honor of the crown. And I've mentioned this phrase before, but we're going to get into the honor of the crown today. So the honor of the crown is an idea that is given increasing importance within the Aboriginal rights and title framework. And it's the idea that there is this duty on the crown to behave honorably that is especially important within the context of the crown's relationship with Aboriginal peoples and Aboriginal rights and title issues. The court describes the honor of the crown as a core precept, which means that in all dealings with Aboriginal peoples, the Crown must act honorably. 
And the court says this honor of the crown gives rise to different duties in different circumstances. And we'll get into some of the other circumstances where the honor of the crown imposes a duty when we talk about the Manitoba Métis case. But in the Haida case, the honor of the crown gave rise to a duty to consult. And this duty can arise where there is a not yet settled, not yet resolved Aboriginal rights claim. And the basic idea is it would not be honorable to exploit resources over which a claim has been made while negotiations are taking place and thereby depriving the claimants of the benefit of that resource. It wouldn't be honorable to say, yes, you may very well have title to that land and we're going to figure that out in due course. And in the meantime, give a logging company the ability to forever change the nature of that land or to give a mining company the opportunity to build a tailings pond or to give a hydroelectric dam project an approval and to flood out the land in a way that cannot be you know, easily remediated. So while these rights are being negotiated or litigated, while a title claim is outstanding, the court says the honor of the crown requires consultation and possibly accommodation of the Aboriginal rights and the Aboriginal title interest. So I'll talk a bit about when this duty arises and then the content of the duty. When does the duty arise? Well, the court says when the Crown has knowledge, real or constructive, of the potential existence of the Aboriginal right or title claim and contemplates conduct that might adversely affect it. So you need knowledge real or constructive, of the existence or potential existence of the Aboriginal right or title, and contemplate conduct that might adversely affect it. A few things to unpack there. So the claim doesn't, as I say, the claim doesn't need to have been established yet. If the Crown knows that there is a potential claim out there, that can be sufficient to trigger the duty. You don't need to show actual knowledge either. If you can show constructive knowledge, that is, the Crown ought to have known about this claim, that will also trigger a duty to consult. Of course, if the Crown is saying it didn't know about the claim, maybe they won't have actually done consultation, but the Aboriginal group can go to court and obtain a remedy saying that they had to do it, they need to do it. So knowledge, actual or constructive, you knew or you ought to have known, that there was an issue here, and the claim can be proven or asserted. If you have those factors, then there will be a duty to consult with the Aboriginal group that is placed on the Crown. So what is the content of the duty to consult and accommodate? It varies with the circumstances and the specifics of the cases. In general, the scope of the duty is on a spectrum. And you want to think that there are two factors which dictate where on the spectrum the duty will fall. And if you want to think of an analogy, it's not dissimilar from the Baker factors and how that dictates the procedural fairness that is owed in an administrative law proceeding. Within the duty to consult framework, the factors dictate how much consultation is owed 
and if there will also be a duty to accommodate the interest. So the factors which dictate where on the spectrum you lie with respect to your obligation to consult or accommodate are only two. It's how serious is the impact and how strong is the claim. So if you have a serious impact on the Aboriginal right or title, that's going to require more consultation, a irreversible impact, say. If you're going to flood out an area with a hydroelectric dam, that is an irreversible impact on the natural environment, and that is going to lead to the high level of consultation. If you are, say, widening a road within an area where there is an asserted Aboriginal, right? That may be a less serious impact and need less consultation. So you want to think one factor is how serious of an impact on the Aboriginal right are we talking about? And the second impact is how strong is the claim for the Aboriginal right or title? At the high end of the spectrum, we can think of established proven claims. So if you're dealing with a established treaty right, or you're dealing with a declared Aboriginal right or Aboriginal title claim that's been recognized by the courts, that's always going to be at the high end. If you're dealing with a asserted claim with very little apparent strength, perhaps there's some clear evidentiary issues that would suggest that this group was not in this area, or there's a right claimed that seems very unlikely to be traceable to a pre-contact practice that's integral to a distinct society. If there's a weak claim, then you're going to be at the lower end of the spectrum. And you want to think that you measure both factors. So the absolute lowest end of the spectrum would be a weak claim and a low impact. And the highest end of the spectrum would be an established claim and an irreversible impact. So what rights come with the consultation? Well, if you're at the low end of the spectrum, you have a weak claim, no serious impact. All you're going to have to do as the Crown is provide adequate notice of the planned activity, disclose relevant information, and discuss issues that are raised by the Aboriginal group in response to the notice. So if you think in your administrative law framework, this is a very minimal right to know the case, to meet and have a chance to meet it, to know what's going to happen and the opportunity to raise concerns and then have those concerns discussed with the Crown. So that's the low end. At the high end of the spectrum, you will have a range of different activities that will be expected. There'll be an exchange of information and correspondence, of course, just like you would have for a weak claim. But you would also expect meetings, site visits, research to be done, studies to be commissioned, an opportunity to make submissions directly to the decision maker, that is the person who's going to issue the permit or decide upon the approval. You might expect written reasons. And if you're at the very high end of the spectrum, you may also have a duty to accommodate put on the crown. So a duty to accommodate 
might include a duty to adjust the project, to develop mitigation measures, to consider changing the proposed activity to attach terms and conditions to a permit or authorization, to give financial compensation to the First Nation for the burden that they're being asked to bear, and to even consider rejecting a project altogether. The courts, however, are quite reluctant to impose a duty to accommodate. It happens only in the most serious potential infringements, so well-established claims combined with serious or irreversible impacts. That's the type of situation you'll see the courts say there may be a duty to accommodate. And what's important to remember about that is the duty to accommodate can require some substantive changes to the project. But the duty to consult is a procedural duty. It's process. It's, I think in Min Law, it's procedural fairness. It's not getting into the substance of the decision. So the Crown can go through these consultations, a lengthy consultation process here, strong objection from the First Nation, and can nonetheless proceed with the project under the duty to consult framework. If you're into accommodation, you may have an obligation to make some substantive changes to the project. You may have an obligation to redesign or relocate some elements of the project, pay compensation, as I say. However, the courts have been extremely reluctant to suggest that there will be a veto power within a consultation and accommodation framework. And the courts have repeatedly warned against a veto being read into the duty to consult. That's set out in Haida Nation at paragraph 48. The court says, This process does not give Aboriginal groups a veto over what can be done with land pending final proof of the claim. The Aboriginal consent spoken of in Delgamook is appropriate only in cases of established rights and then by no means in every case. Rather, what is required is a process of balancing interests of give and take. So in Haida, there seems to be this contemplation that perhaps in the case of some established rights claims, there will be a consent standard, which would mean if there's no consent, there is effectively a veto. But the courts have even shied away from that language. For example, in a recent decision of the Federal Court of Appeal concern, concerning the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, the court said, A meaningful process becomes unworkable when, as here, the only compromise acceptable to the Indigenous group is to abandon the entire project, insisting that the only acceptable accommodation is selecting an alternative to the project amounts to seeking a veto over the project, which forms no part of the duty to consult. So what you want to think is the duty to consult is generally process. You have to go through a certain process, listen to the Aboriginal groups, provide them an opportunity to be heard in the most serious of infringements. There also will be a duty to accommodate. However, the courts have insisted that duty to accommodate, that duty to accommodate will not include a veto over the project. Now, this raises the question as to how meaningfully rights are protected 
if they can never include a right to say no to a project. But what I think you should take away is that the notion there's no veto power, you, you can't say the duty to consult and accommodate required that you just don't go ahead with this project. That is generally accepted as the law today. I'm not sure that will be always the law, and I think there's some very interesting arguments based on the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Persons and some fundamental underlying logic of the Aboriginal rights framework, which suggests that there ought to be veto rights that are extended. The one exception to the no veto rights idea, I think, is if there's proven Aboriginal title and there's a project planned which would deprive future generations of the benefit of Aboriginal title land, the statement in Silcoteen that such an infringement could never be justified is, is probably the equivalent of recognizing a veto right over that type of a project. But generally speaking, outside of that extreme example, proven title and a project that will deprive future generations of the right to the land, the duty to consult and accommodate will just mean the Crown has to go through a process and may have to make changes to a project but will not have to abandon the project. So what you're left with is a fairly straightforward framework. The Crown knows or ought to have known that there was a asserted Aboriginal right or title claim to an area, and they contemplate doing or authorizing something that could adversely affect that right or title claim. There's a duty to consult. What that's going to entail is going to depend on the strength of the claim and the degree of damage to the claim that the planned activity will cause or may cause. If it's a less strong claim or a less serious impact, the duty to consult will impose less obligations, basically advise the group that this is happening and hear their position on the matter. If it's a serious impact and a proven right, the procedural obligations will be much more extensive. There may be a requirement to do research, extensive meetings, give an opportunity for the First Nation to make submissions directly to the decision maker, meet with the decision maker. And there may also be a substantive component through the duty to accommodate, a duty to perhaps change the project, to consider alternatives. However, this duty to accommodate has not been elevated to a power to cancel the project. It's not a veto. You don't have to get Aboriginal consent under the duty to accommodate as the law stands now. That may change, but that is the generally accepted view of the law as it stands now. So this may seem like a relatively minor duty, but it in fact is extremely important in practice. Because the duty to consult, while it imposes very little substantive power over a project and does not provide a substantive ability to cancel a project, does apply very broadly to a wide swath of activities and projects. And properly engaging and completing the duty to consult 
is rather time-consuming, and the discharge of a duty to consult is judicially reviewable. So you can go to court and say, look, we had a duty to consult. The Crown did not discharge that duty properly. And then the court will direct that any authorization that was given for that project be set aside and the consultation occur again. So while in substance, there isn't a power to cancel projects that is created by the duty to consult, there is a significant power to delay projects that is provided by the duty to consult. Consultation takes a long time, and if there are mistakes, the matter can be overturned, the consultation can be ordered to be done again, and the court process itself can take a long time. So the uncertainty around a project, the uncertainty around whether adequate consultation had occurred can be significant and can greatly expand the time that is required to complete a project. Furthermore, there is a hope that animates the duty to consult, which is that by framing the duty to consult and making it into primarily a procedural issue, you will just get the Crown, the representatives of the government, and the First Nations together talking and hopefully find mutually beneficial solutions. And this can happen. This does happen where you'll have consultation leads to an understanding as to what the First Nations priorities are and what compensation uh, or other accommodations might be able to advance the First Nations interests to the point where you know the project going ahead can be a net benefit for that group. Another dynamic is that proponents the groups who are trying to advance a project, a mining company or a pipeline company, they have a strong incentive because of the time that the project can be tied up during a duty to consult. They have a strong incentive to try to get a First Nation on side, to try to get an agreement with the First Nation to support a project. However, like anything with Aboriginal law and First Nation status in the Canadian legal system, you can't think about the duty to consult in a manner divorced from Canada's history of mistreatment of First Nations. And when you think about the idea of getting a First Nation to be on sides with a project for a mining company to perhaps get a First Nation to agree that a project is a uh, is worthwhile in their traditional territory. You have to think, well, who are they going to be negotiating with? And this comes back to that problem of the band council system that I mentioned in the last lecture. The idea that the Indian Act imposed this band council system, the band council system on the First Nations, which displaced their traditional governance structures and imposed a elected council system with some historically sexist rules such as women could not vote or could not serve as leader regardless of what the traditional governance and constitutional framework of the first nation would say about that issue and so who does the company need to obtain the consent of do they go to the band council do they have to go to the hereditary leaders well the hereditary leaders, that is the people who 
would have a position of leadership under the traditional governance structure of the First Nation are not always clearly identifiable. There can be competing claims. So if you see a industry representative tout the consent that's been acquired from First Nations for their project, you know, this needs to beg the question of consent from whom? Is it consent from the band council? Is there a significant split in that First Nation between people who think the band council represents the group and people who think that the hereditary chiefs represent the group? These are, are difficult questions. But the broader point stands that the duty to consult while not providing a substantive veto over projects. The Haida Gwaii couldn't say, nope, you cannot issue that forest license. While it doesn't go that far, the duty to consult imposes a significant procedural burden on the Crown and can impose a significant substantive burden to at least change the project to minimally infringe the protected rights and can impose a duty to provide compensation as well for infringements that can't be avoided. And this drives the First Nation and the government into a room together to try to work out a solution. It strongly incentivizes industry to try to work out a solution as well. And in so doing, it substantially impacts how projects are approved and developed within Canada. So big picture for the duty to consult, you want to think its basis lies in the honor of the crown. Consultation is a procedural duty that can include a duty to accommodate, which has a substantive aspect, but does not include a right to say no to the project, at least as of now. What is going to be entailed by the duty to consult depends on the strength of the claim and the seriousness of the infringement. And the practical consequence of the duty to consult is that it drives the government and industry to try to come to agreements with First Nations. However, the process of coming to agreements with First Nations can't be considered absent remembering the history of the band council system and the difficulties in identifying who has the right to speak for the First Nation. We will continue to talk about the duty to consult in the next part of this lecture when we talk about treaty rights, and it will come up again when we talk about Métis rights and even the intersection of the Charter and Aboriginal rights.